Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Analytical Fanboys. I am your host, Simeon Scott, and I am, of course, joined by my co-host, the spectacular Chris Gaston. How are you doing this evening, sir? Uh, filled with 1% fear. Great. Fantastic. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a bit of a week, ain't it? Yeah, yeah. We just had our heart broken like a couple hours earlier, but yeah. Yeah, um, for context, uh, me and Chris literally just an hour ago got done watching um, NXT TakeOver Brooklyn 4, I believe it was. Yes, yes. Um, great event. We're going to have a video on that coming out at some point. It's a bit um, unsure when that's going to be exactly, but... Uh, as soon as I'm out. done editing it, because I'm the one editing that <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, been a crazy busy week with lots of interesting stuff going on, uh, for me, both personal life and publicly. And Hey, um, takeover isn't the only thing that's going on this weekend. There's also power Morphicon, TF nation and fucking, um, oh yeah. Summer slam. <laughs> um, greatest party of the summer. But we're not here to talk about any of that. No, we're here to talk about a comic book. We're going to talk about Daredevil, The Man Without Fear by Frank Miller and John Romita Jr., um, which is not my definitive Daredevil origin, but definitely like one of the best ones out there um, yeah. that I've been wanting to talk about for quite a while in some form. So... Um, uh, Chris, had you read this beforehand? No, I had not. I have not. I'm not. Uh, I'm a bit. I like Daredevil, but I've never been the most diehard Daredevil guy, so I haven't read it. All right. Well, why don't you go ahead and give me a general thoughts then, and like do a best thing, worst thing. Uh, general thoughts. It's, it takes all the element. It takes all the weird elements that have been accumulated about Daredevil's origin. Because Daredevil's origin originally was just, oh, he was son of a boxer who got blinded and has a little bit better senses than other places. And then they stick. And then they had the fact that, oh, his dad was called the devil and all these different little elements. And so they just smushed it all together to make one comprehensive origin. Um, also an origin for the Kingpin, which I didn't know was a part of this. Mm-hmm. Um... But throughout that, it is told in a very Frank Miller way, um, which, depending on how you feel about Frank Miller, uh, is very, very divisive. Because in this book specifically, I understood it, and I liked it well enough, because it felt very poetic. The, the thing about... Um, and I guess we're just going to go ahead and jump right into this. Um, the thing about Frank Miller's writing style is he only really has one voice, and it only really works for a couple of characters, and one of those characters, it's only in a specific setting. Yeah. Uh, it's the, yeah, that's the best way I could probably put it, because he's very much trying to write neo-noir, and there's, like... Four superheroes that fit with neo noir, yeah, and Daredevil's one of them, which is why he always did amazing with Daredevil. 
but uh, the thing I don't uh, he he didn't fall, he doesn't have many of his bad habits like the constant repeating words or the nonsensical metaphors or the very very he has a lot of misogynist metaphors or mm-hmm. uh, just very what's the best way to put because I don't want to say problematic because it's worse than that ignorant. Very Mm -hmm. ignorant prose. None of that's here. Yeah, this is like... I wouldn't say it's one of the last things, but this is towards the end of the period where Frank Miller was coherent and kind of widely celebrated. Um, Like, I think it would be like... Oh, God, what year is this? Um, This Help me, Google. This is 93, so this is quite a bit before All-Star Batman, which I think was early 2000s, and that's when he started going off the deep end. I'd say he started going off the deep end more specifically late 90s. He showed the warning signs then. Yeah. Like uh, like his part of Batman Spawn. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that book. That's uh, That's an interesting beast. Oh yeah, I have both. Uh, I have both issues, Batman Spawn and Spawn Batman. Nice. Well, yeah. maybe we'll talk about that at some point. But uh, for now, yeah, I thought I thought this book was really interesting. I'd read it only uh, a couple times before, and I sat down and read it, uh, reread it just last night. And um, getting to sit through the whole thing in one sitting was really interesting because. Um, this is such a complete piece, and you don't often get that with comics. You know, this is a five-issue mini, and it really understands the time it's allotted and um, uses all that real estate to the best extent it probably could have. Um, we get a lot of time with young Matt. Um, there's a little bit of him in college years, and like it's only really like the back half of the fourth issue and the fifth issue that Matt's all Yeah. Uh, the best way to, like, it also, like, really contextualizes a lot of the just Daredevil-isms that are just there. Like, uh, the way he just responds to Daredevil, the whole law school, that whole thing. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of talk about Matt having this fire burning within him, of him being restless and having to go out and beat up criminals. Um, and that's there from a very early age where the comic literally opens on him um, sitting on a fire escape, not being able to go out and play with the other kids because his dad was so strict. And he would often um, put on like a ski mask and a hoodie and go out and just screw with cops because he needed some kind of release. Um, yeah. And, and, that's really interesting um, how this is a character who's very much committed to being good, but at the same time, there's that acknowledgement of you can't be 100% good 100% of the time. Everybody needs some kind of release. Um, no man is ever and, truly good. No man is ever truly evil. You do the best you ever good, and then you'll never be equal. Yeah. Um <laughs> That's a great fucking pull right there. Jesus. Uh, 
But, uh, but yeah, um, I, I really like this book's characterization of Matt. There's a, there's a few off things here and there, like, um, oh, God, what was I going to say? There's a, I had a bunch of stuff in my head last night when I was rereading this where I was like, oh, I can talk about this and I can talk about that. And now it's like flipping through the book, looking for things to talk about, as it usually is when I review a comic. Um <laughs> But I like how it kind of broke up Matt into very distinct eras of his life, you know? Yeah. Pre-blinding, post-blinding, teens, uh, young adult in college, and then uh, finally becoming Daredevil. And basically all the moments he tried to fight who he was. And it's interesting that... There's that constant theme of him fighting the urge to be Daredevil, but eventually giving in. And yet there's very little of the Catholic um, part of the character being shown here. Like, I think there's maybe one panel of him going to church and his mom shows up maybe once or twice. And she, for those of you who know your Daredevil, she's a nun and left uh, Matt and his dad at a very young age. Um but, there, but there's not a lot of Christian mythology, even though this is very much a dealing with your your temptation and sin kind of story. Yeah. Maybe maybe because Frank Miller was a better writer at the time, he figured, ah, that'd be a little bit too on the nose. Maybe. Um, but there's a lot of cool stuff. And I think he was also trying to focus in more on the discipline of it because uh the whole stick subplot yeah stick is really interesting in this book because he's not really the mentor character you know him as he kind of comes in and starts being that and then he's more like just this presence leering in the background for the whole thing which i thought was a really interesting take yeah um i the, the one moment i really like is the last few pages when uh, Matt Murdock finally decided, all right, I'm going to be a defense attorney in New York, and at night I'm going to be Daredevil, They're, uh, him and Foggy are at a bar, and he just notices Stick is also in the bar. And when he notices Stick, Stick gets up and just goes, all right, kid, don't get too cocky. Basically yeah. saying, like, you're on the right path now, but don't think that makes you a big shot. Which is kind of Stick's whole approach to Matt. Um, is run that he's just able to do those very simple little, um, just this is the essence of this part of his mythos. Yeah. I also really love the whole breakdown of um, him and Elektra. Yeah, the Electra subplot that's in that just kind of takes over during the middle of this book is really interesting because a lot a lot of books tend to treat Electra as just like, oh, she's the bad girl girlfriend that you, you all want to chase after, and she's this and that and the other thing. And um, this book really plays her up as she is a mystery she is an enigma you can never really understand her and that's what's so intoxicating about her to matt um, see here's the thing i read that a little bit differently i read that whole thing as essentially 
Matt is a good guy trying to fight evil. That's who his core, core character is. And he's been fighting that because it's like, oh, no, you can't just fight violence with violence. And no, you got to be smarter than that. He got raised that way. So he's going like, no. Okay. When Electra comes in, it's basically like a shot of heroin that gives him that same dopamine rush. But he's not feeling the same urge. It's basically he's becoming addicted to being with Electra more than Electra's like this bad girl he's so curious about. It's more of like, no, she actually lets me. It's the dopamine rush that he couldn't get that his body's been craving. I can see that too, but there's there's also the element of when she leaves at the end, um, and she she won't. It literally says there's nothing Matt can do. It says this in the narration. There's nothing Matt can do. She won't give him any answers about where she's going or why she has to leave. She's just saying that it's for his own good. And, I, and I'm and i like, there, it's saying there is more of this character. There's more you can't understand. There's, there's constant narration of her talking about she has voices in her head telling her to do awful, terrible things. And... She does do awful, terrible things when Matt's not around. There's that scene where she um, basically um, murders a bunch of rapists by luring them into an alley and then stripping for them and then just kicking the shit out of them, which is a, honestly one of the best scenes of comic. Yeah, but I think it, it like, but like I said, it's an addiction. But it just so happens that the crack is the crack is sentient and goes like, no, I'm fucking up your life. If I, like, yeah, I'd want you to be around you, but if we kept doing this, you're gonna die? Mm-hmm. And I don't want you to, so bye! Yeah, but, I can, I guess. Yeah. Um... So, uh... You mentioned it earlier, but uh, what what do you think of the Kingpin in this book? I think it's very interesting that they showed it as the Kingpin was replacing, for lack of a better way of describing it, wholesome crime. The mobster was basically going like, we're criminals, but we're not child... Uh, we're not monsters, is what he literally said. Yeah. But then the Kingpin goes like, alright, I'll be the monster. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that leads to his downfall because being the monster brings out the devil to collect his soul. Yeah. Which, uh. if you look at it like that, the whole imagery of Daredevil really also adds another layer of mystique to it because he's chasing down criminals, collecting their souls, collecting the payment that they do uh, that they're due to society. Yeah, and this. This comic is also really interesting just for the way it portrays the Kingpin of he is sort of just an absolute evil working in the background that you can't really, um, that Matt is not prepared for yet. You know, he's going out to deal with Kingpin's thugs, but he's not prepared to deal with Kingpin himself. He's still new he's still kind of green he doesn't really understand how everything in the city works as far as crime goes he has to wait and for spider-man to to fight him first yes <laughs> <laughs> the kingpin is out there he's this brutal merciless guy um and it's 
And I bring that up because it's really interesting to compare this to the first season of the Daredevil Netflix series, because this comic, um, they, the writers of that show often said this comic was the direct inspiration for the plot of the first season. Um, you know, the, the, cost, the costume where it's just like black clothes and a bandana taped across Matt's head, that's the same costume he's wearing in the MCU series, and that's the costume he wears in the last issue of this instead of his regular Daredevil suit. Until um, the last spread. Yeah, and they, and it's interesting just how different their two kingpins are. Um, you know, a lot of people would say um, wrongly, in my opinion, that the kingpin in, in the Daredevil show is kind of a relatable villain, and you and you want and you almost want to root for him. And, I'm, and not he's not relatable. Dive, he's empathetic. You can empathize. You can go like, oh, I see where you're from. Yeah, that's the thing. He's empathetic. He's not relatable. Um, Similar but, to Thanos. Uh, Thanos is empathetic. You understand why where he's coming from, but you go like, you're still murdering people. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this show, he's or in this comic, he's just fucking evil. Yeah, the best way I can put it is the Daredevil TV show is a human in a monster's costume. This comic, it's a monster in a human costume. Mm-hmm. Which, for each individual story, works perfectly for how they're doing it. Um, let's talk about the art. Yeah, I was about to go there as well. Um, Ramita Jr. has a really interesting art style in this book. It's a bit different than what he normally does, as far as I know. Um, it's very, very inky, very, um, very hard lines, and um, I, I really dig that. Electra's hair, especially, is a really interesting touch because she's often drawn as just having straight black hair, but in this, it's kind of like this dark cloud around her hair with these like wispy sort of tendrils waving out from the back of it. Yeah, you know what? Her hair, the whole art of the book reminds me, it seems like John Romita was trying to emulate some of Frank Miller's own art. Because Frank Miller does art for some of his own books later on and earlier on too. But it feels like he's trying to, there's a few emulations of just some of his style that really fits with the prose that Miller brings to the book. Mm Mm-hmm. The panel layout is also really great. Um, I mean, there's a lot of very um, different kinds of layouts, but every time it it feels like the appropriate layout for that page. Um, there's ne- there's never something that's a bit off. There's never a page reveal that's too soon. Um, it's it's all really well done stuff. Not like what I call Tom King level, but it's it's really solid, especially for the time. Again, it really works with the fact that a lot of the words and narration it feels less like here is a straightforward story, and it feels much more of like a poem. Mm. It's 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 a play much more in the classical sense and not in the here's a plot structure and here is well, the inciting action. It feels much more of like here's a bunch of inciting actions. And the comic and Daredevil story itself is the general story. 
Well, here's here's the thing. As you said earlier on, Daredevil is like a crime noir type character. This book almost feels like a crime noir novel, but with pictures. Yeah. And the art really reflects that with the deep shadows and the uh, stylized colors and all that kind of stuff. Um, also, the covers are just gorgeous. Yeah, and it's it's really great because this was in the 90s when we were starting to go to the more um, outlandish, full-spread, team-running-at-you kind of stuff all the time. And this is like sort of a midpoint between that and the old-style covers where there were like interesting layouts lots of stuff going on almost felt like a piece of the action itself and there, it, it's like there's a bit of action at the bottom and then the top is the character portrait and the placement of the names of the creators themselves is really interesting um it's it's just a really cool book yeah the the covers also just remind me very much of like multimedia collages yeah, yeah, that's that's a great reference point. Similar to like uh, Sandman's covers, mm. except Sandman was very much more abstract and very directly multimedia collages. But this is very much more. Here's this one piece of imagery here, uh, juxtaposed with this other piece of imagery that's very that's not just and eh, we'll just throw them together, but it's very deliberate in its intent. Yeah. So uh, let, let me ask you this story-wise, because we've talked about it a little, but we, we haven't gone into this direct thing. How do you feel about a Matt Murdock who, at a young age, avenged his father's death and went out and killed a bunch of mob bosses? Because I know that's kind of like a teetering point for some people with this book, where they're like, that's a little brutal. That's not something you do with a superhero origin, or if you do, you make it clear that that was a giant mistake and this book doesn't do that. Uh, I'd be interested to know what your take on that happening is. I think it's much more indicative, not of character or action, but it's much more indicative that Matt is ultimately destined to be Daredevil. Mm. And the whole point of his origin is fighting it. That being this brutal, violent thing as a kid and not showing restraint is him fighting it by going too far. Him going to law school, while ultimately is a good thing for Matt Murdock to do and does inform a lot of his character and a lot of his morals, is ultimately him also, again, running away from what he says to do. Running with Electra is him trying to dull that urge by fighting it with a different urge. Yeah, And ultimately, it is... I feel it's less of oh, young kid killing people is a bad thing, and more of, no, this is just who he is, and it was going to happen eventually. And the fact that he was a kid and learned about it then is it's an important part of his character. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing, is I think it works very well for this story. It's not something I would do in a general sense with any superhero, but I think for this specific book and for Matt, it, it kind of works out. And also to people who say you need to make it clear that that was a mistake, there is the mistake moment where that one prostitute gets thrown out a window and dies during a big struggle. And Matt immediately just runs away and he's like, I fucked up. I fucked up. And he goes back because to the Because she was innocent. Mm-hmm. 
and that's why Stick stops training him, which I think is um honestly, I think it's a much better um way for Stick to stop training Matt than is usually done cuz in the Netflix show and I believe the original origin or the original comic that had Stick at least it was he he left Matt because Matt was too soft. He he wanted a father. He didn't want a trainer. And in this, it's he's leaving Matt because this kid can do, potentially do really bad shit. We don't want him working for us. I also read that more as Matt. Matt is led too easily astray, and if we keep training him, he would be more he would have more chances to be led astray, even though we are there to help them. So it's better to cut him off at the point of evil. Like, just preemptively go, like, nope, you're not running into any more bad shit to make you go bad. Yeah. You know? Um, also, uh, speaking of the page where that um, innocent prostitute is killed... I wanted to ask you, um, the page before that, uh, page 46 specifically in the trade I have, on the fourth panel, there's a guy being led um, out of panel by a, a redheaded prostitute. Is it just me, or does he look exactly like Agent Phil Coulson? I don't remember that. Okay, I will find that page and send it to you in just a moment. But, like... That's why I also Stick warned him about Electra. It's basically like, hey, kid, I stopped training you, so you stop running into evil shit. What the fuck are you doing to me? What are you fuck are you doing, bro? Yeah. And that's why when Matt finally decided on his choice of, oh, I'm just going to be Daredevil, Stick came and went like, all right, kid, you're doing the right thing. You're on the right path. You're doing it on your own. I don't need to be here. That whole mentality, which I think is, I think, I think Stick is. I think that's what Stick was uh, intending for a lot of that. At okay. least that's what I. Oh. I also really like because we've talked a little about the narration in this. I really like how there's a lot of discussion of um, Matt's senses and um, Miller gets really descriptive and does a lot of interesting off the cuff things with matt's senses in this where he'll say like um this smelled this the gym smells like sawdust and sweat and this place smells like um oh what do you want to call it uh hang on let me go to the panels where matt is just losing his eyesight there's someone specifically in the hospital i was thinking of but like I was saying, there's there's the discussion of how the gym smells like sawdust and sweat. Um, when Matt is being taken to the hospital, it says in the ambulance, the blanket they put on him feels like sandpaper. Um, and uh, there's a moment where before his senses fully develop, he, he's feeling the necklace his mom has on. And he just says, it's something hard. It's something hard. What is it? It's a cross. And... I really like that Miller goes the extra mile in the narration to describe what it is like to only have the senses that are not sight as, as something to view the world from. Because while Matt does have radar vision later in life, 
um, during those things where he's a boy, it, it's still just him as a blind man. Oh, yeah. And people always overestimate how much the radar sense can help him. Like, yeah, he knows where things are, but... He still can't read a piece of paper. He still can't read a piece of paper. He still does... He can't perceive colors. And yeah, he can get a general shape, but it's always going to be a little bit odd because different objects are going to read differently with sound. Like, yeah, he knows where his sofa is, but he doesn't know exactly what's on it. Or rather, he doesn't know what color it is, unless somebody tells him. No, no, what I mean is, like, say he has a dog and it's on the sofa. If he goes, like, and looks at the sofa with his radar sense, it's all going to be one soft, mushy object. Hmm. Because the sound's being dampened by the sofa and the dog's fur and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. So, uh, what, what did you think of Foggy in this book? Um, they really overplayed a lot of his comedic elements just to have some levity in the whole book, but he was there. Yeah, it's just kind of like your bargain bin, Foggy. This, this obviously isn't his story, but he has, like, a moment, and that's kind of it. Uh, the, the thing with the guy who Matt, who is bullying him and then Matt goes out and beats the guy up and tells him to stop bullying Foggy, that's really all there is. Um, the rest of it is, uh, it is just kind of him being there for to be the, the dopey best friend. But he's also kind of there to center um, Matt's lawyerness. Because yeah. Matt went on to be a big corporate lawyer, and Foggy goes like, nah, man, I'm helping out poor people. It's great. I love it. Don't get paid, but I love it. And it really reminded Matt of like, oh, yeah, you can help out people more than just punching them. True. So in that way, Foggy's kind of like a moral center for his soul. Yeah, and that's kind of kind of always what Foggy is. It's just... It's very underplayed in this book, which is uh, one of the few shortcomings of it. You know, I, I prefer a Foggy who's much more in Matt's face. You know, we've been best friends for this long and doing this, that, and that. And, and it's because it's, this is so early in their relationship that we don't get that. So early in their relationship, but also so early in their reestablishing their relationship as working adults. Yeah. Because this book literally ends with them um, establishing Nelson and Murdoch. Yeah. You know, it's one thing that modern, a modern retelling of the entirety of Daredevil's origin would do, but they didn't. But at the time, they may have not wanted to, or they may have just went like, nah, it's stupid, and we don't want to acknowledge it. I wish somewhere in the background of when he was saving the dude from ooze you saw another kid with a bowl of turtles that would be great just because that's the that's the origin of the turtles they come from daredevil technically yeah. but both companies never really acknowledged that well the original ninja turtles comic was a parody of miller's daredevil and x-men too hmm 
I don't know, but like TMNT always gives little nods to Daredevil. It would be really cool if Daredevil like returned the nod. Yeah, that should happen at some point. Uh, but you know, uh, it's not, it's not like a negative. It's just more of like a if I was writing it, I'd do that. Um, so I only have one other really big talking point, and it's 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 one that's potentially a bit critical. What do you think of the character of Mickey and um, the fact that she's basically here to just be a damsel in distress? Ultimately, it's a good idea to have a character be that kind of catalyst. You know, she's his Uncle Ben. Mm-hmm. That's what she is. But the thing is, she's also not a character that's from pre-established Daredevil lore. I think she was created for this book, unless I'm just talking out my ass right now. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, she is that Catalyst character, like uh, the other scientist was for Tony Stark. Like, Uncle Ben is for Spider-Man. Like, uh, the... uh, like um, depending on the continuity, but also the Waynes are for Batman. She is designed to be that kind of centering moment for Matt Murdock to go like, "Oh shit, I need to become this to help the world." And it's she's a good centering character, but she's not a good character. Yeah. Um. She's just, like, she uh, especially bugs me because she she's introduced to the book and set up as it's this tough girl who's spending her nights out on the street hiding out in this gym because it gives her something to do. And she starts training with Matt and she's she's kind of a tomboy. And then she's kidnapped, tied up really easily by a couple druggies and put in a dress. It's like, uh, Really? Yeah. I don't know. It, I understand why they did it. I don't like it. I'm not defending them, but I understand why they did it. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of at the same place. It's it's like, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's also like, couldn't you have maybe picked another character or at least not establish this character as one thing and then turned it into a completely other thing? Well, they put her in a dress because they're trying to sell her for child sex slaves. Yeah. I mean it makes it makes sense. It's just weird that that's where they that's that's where they went with this character that they seemingly introduced to be another thing. Like if you if you go into this book and it's your first time reading anything Daredevil, you don't know very much about the character, you think they're setting Mickey up to be Matt's sidekick. Am I wrong? No, they, it, it does set it up a little bit, but I think that's kind of the more... That's more of the point of, like, yeah, Daredevil shouldn't have a sidekick because he's dealing with very depraved people. And, like, the only other sidekick character that I can think of that shouldn't be a sidekick is, like, Robin? For a very similar reason. Hmm. And I think that may be part of the intent, but I don't think that was directly... Well, this may be like Miller trying to make a point about that because Miller's often been critical of like certain things that are known as integral to the characters he's written. Like he doesn't, he thinks Matt Murdock being a defense attorney is kind of stupid. He he's not a 
huge fan of the concept of Robin, but he's not a vocal critic of it. But I'm eating nut butter, by the way. That's maybe the crunchy sound you're hearing. <laughs> it's fine. Um, um, but yeah, that's that's about all the stuff I wanted to talk about with this book, unless you've got anything else. I'm not saying that you see them as warning signs, but you can see a lot of the negatives that Frank Miller's writing has later on in this book. Yeah, there, there, there definitely were some moments where I was like, "Oh, this is this is something that would that would later be referred to as a Millerism." Yeah, and this book is very restrained. And when it's when Frank Miller's restrained in that sense, he's good. Mm-hmm. He's well, like. For- uh, He's like Koichi Sakamoto, you know, to make a c- comparison to a medium we're another medium we're both fans of, Tokusatsu. Koichi is a great director, but you kind of got to have that guy on a leash, otherwise you're going to have tons and tons of leg shots. Yeah, like he's like George Lucas. You got to have you got to have him on a leash, and you got to have other people working with him, or else you're going to get. Five pages of Batman just saying, rain, the city, rain, boobs, rain. Yes. Rain. rain. And you can see the beginnings of that here, but it's less pronounced. And it feels very much of like, oh, man, this writing's really good. Hey, Frank, can you do more? It's like, yeah. You want me to do more? (laughs) And it, it... it's the beginnings of a very negative habit that he got into. Yeah, definitely. I say that as if writing an entire comic about Islam, uh, Islamophobia and trying to make it like bat uh, and trying to pitch it as a Batman story uh, is a good. Uh, it's just a bad habit and not just shitty storytelling. Well, I think that was. I'm not. I. All right. Straight out, I am not defending that comic. I'm just saying, I think that was like a huge misstep, and he was in a very dark place at that time, as opposed to his other shitty stuff, which is just him being a bad writer. Yeah, no. He can be at a bad place, and you can acknowledge that that's where the work came from, but it doesn't defend the work. Yeah. Also... And ultimately, it doesn't defend the person, because if you're in that bad of a place, you should recognize it. You'd be a little yeah. bit more self-aware. Yeah. I mean, like, we're, we're, we're generally, I'd say we're coming off pretty positive about this book. But, like, I am not the biggest fan of Frank Miller, the person. Um, no. I don't I'm think not even that good. big a fan of him as a writer. Like, his Daredevil is about the only thing of his I've ever really gotten into. Frank Miller's great at coming up with base ideas and having other people deal with it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, he came up with Stick and Electra and all the, the the hand and all that kind of stuff, and it's ten times better when someone else deals with it. Yeah. Frank uh, Miller came up with Dark Knight, Dark Knight Returns. It's so much better when someone else has has a filter on it and can really like point in on what he was trying to say instead of just a general sense. 
Definitely. Um, also, I've been flipping through this book a lot while we're, we're talking about it tonight, and I've just noticed this book has almost as much of its main character in his underwear as a softcore porn would. Like, holy crap, there's a lot of scenes of Matt and his tidy whities As it should be. <laughs> um, Motherfucker, we're wrestling fans. That makes us like 25% gay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> well, he didn't argue with that. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm 25% gay. All well, right. we were we just spent like a half hour talking about how great Velvetre- Velveteen Dream is earlier this evening, so... And spent like a good five minutes of that match trying to read what was on his ass. <laughs> Call him up, Vince. <laughs> oh, God. Um... Uh, so no, any, that's any, that should be the name. Of, that should be the name of our wrestling podcast. Twenty five percent gay. Oh my god. <laughs> um. Uh. So, any other scattered thoughts on this comic? Um. The colors were pretty good, but I have a feeling that the copy I read were enhanced colors later on, and that they didn't look that way when they were first published. Yeah. Um. So colors were good, but I don't know if that's reflective of their intent when they were writing. Uh, a lot of the art is good and has some of the most iconic Daredevil panels ever, like uh, Matt with uh, the black suit going in, charging. Just that whole single page is probably the most iconic Daredevil pose. And that, that and the last... page spread where he's standing on a rooftop in the rain wearing a suit. That or the last spread where uh, he's going like, um, I made a suit, but I don't know what it looks like. And he's Which flying through the Which is a little air. silly for how good the suit looks, but I'll, considering how good the rest of the book was, I was like, I'll allow it. I think that's always kind of like the point of, that's like the joke of Daredevil costumes. It's like, yeah, I made the suit. I have no idea what it looks like comes out with a red singlet over top of a giant yellow bodysuit. Mm-hmm. Which is why the Netflix show had the gladiator make his costume, and they didn't do the yellow costume first. I would love the yellow costume, though, as a reference. Yeah, that'd be great. Just like in in one in a couple episodes, he, he can't get to his regular suit, so he just goes into a closet and throws a bunch of random shit on. Know what I would, how I would do it? He would be like he'd be jogging and he'd be wearing like a uh, uh, yellow Under Armour long sleeve shirt, like you mm. see some guys wear. And then, oh no, shit's happening! He goes into a thing, puts on a red hoodie and a red bandana, and he but the hoodie doesn't have sleeves, so his arms are yellow, his chest is red, much like the old school costume. Nice, yeah, that could work. Um. But yeah, since since we're talking about uh, costumes and stuff, I'll also say that just like for a book that came out in the early '90s, this book looks super '80s. Just the way people are dressed and their hair is styled, um, like. But you also got to remember the story is taking place in the '80s. True. Um, like because just, uh, it's leading up to modern. Da- it's leading up to Daredevil. Matt is Daredevil, which is supposed to be today. Well, yeah. today when the comic is published. So this is this is like a uh, a period piece, 
And like that's really evident in like the the big one that sticks out like a sore thumb to me is the dress Electra is wearing in the scene where she's playing piano. Like oh yes. No no woman would wear that dress nowadays. Unless they are being ironic. Yeah. That is like mid-80s Grammy dress right there. Yeah, but at the time. But at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so yeah, um, like I said, I really like this book. Um, not my favorite Daredevil origin, but a really, really solid mini. Um, what's, what's your overall thoughts, Chris? Before I do that, can I go piss? I need to piss. I'll be okay. right back. I'll get the elevator music going. go into my thoughts and you'll edit yeah. around it. Yeah, I'll just add. Um, this is probably one of the better solid re-origin tellings. Uh, similar like Batman Year One and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, I think I don't think there's anything like you could ever do to like completely change Daredevil's or like I don't think you there's a way to really update it now there's like nothing new you have to add it's just imagine all this but it takes place now and that's all the all they have to do to retell the origin so in that regard it's probably the quintessential origin story for any comic book character it's that solid yeah 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 it's all right um, yeah, pretty good. So, uh, I guess since we're now done with our main topic, why don't we go ahead and move on to our new and exciting segment, Fucked Up Fruit Facts. Chris, what do you have for us on this episode? Apples, peaches, and raspberries are all members of the Rose family. What the fuck? How's that even work? Genetics. Great. Um, and let's just briefly bum rush through the Q and A segment because hey, guess what? 
there's no user questions this week. Uh, pick a uh, pick a pick a pick a pick a number between one and five. Five. Which do you like better, morning or night? Night. Same here. Great. We're good. We're done. Let's let's move on to selecting the next the topic for the next episode, which I can't really show you because we're recording in a different way than normal, and I don't think I can video feed to you. Nope. But so I can I trust have... you. Yeah. I mean, I've done it enough times and not fucked with you. You know, I won't do it now. Watch it. Watch it be a topic I picked. Yeah. No, it's UHF. UHF. The Weird Al Yankovic film. Did, did, did you intend to say it like that? I intend to say it however the fuck I said it. Great. Um, all right, well. Uh, it will probably take me a couple days to get a hold of a copy, but um, that that shouldn't take too long for us to do. Um, no, we're we're getting a lot of good like, hey, here's quick things for you to watch. Yeah, episodes except Transformers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like movie, five issue comic series, movie. So uh. I know. Yeah. yeah. But um pretty cool pretty cool. I I I've seen that movie once, but it was quite a while ago, so it'll be great to get to re experience it after so long and uh, uh you know, eat some Twinkie Wiener sandwiches. It's great. It's probably it's a great movie. It's one of my favorite comedies. Well, um, anyways, I think that's going to do it for this episode of Analytical Fanboys. Thank you all to, for uh, joining us once again. Um, if you want to uh, listen to this episode or any other episode of the podcast on the go and you don't have anything like YouTube Red, hey, go ahead and click that link in the video description. It's called YouTube. In... It's called YouTube Premium now. Great. Fantastic. Good for them. Um, but go ahead and click that link in the video description and download an MP3 from uh, Google Drive. And, hey, while you're at it, send us an email um, at uh, analyticalfanboys at gmail.com if you have any questions or suggestions for the show. And make sure you mark it as okay to read on air. And uh, when you're done with that, hey, uh, why don't you go ahead and subscribe to this channel? That'd be pretty great. Um, and... Uh, if you're interested in watching any of our stuff, well, um, I'll let uh, Chris tell you about his stuff. Chris, what what the fuck do you do? Uh, how the fuck do I answer that? Okay. Uh, hi, I'm Chris Boing Writer Gaston. I do video editorials. Best way to put it, they're less essays going like this is a thing, and more uh, this is my opinion um, for you to watch. Uh, I do it a lot of subjects, uh, uh, videos that are kind of in the in the pipeline right now include a video on NXT, a video on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, a video on the Super Mario Bros. Uh, movie, a um, couple others. Um, they're coming. They're gonna come out. I promise. I'm not lying. It's gonna happen. I've seen one of them, so I know he's at least partially telling the truth. <laughs> 
It's the shitty thing is whenever I get into a groove of editing, I have to stop and I've only edited about two minutes. Uh, that's 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 the way it goes. And the video is twenty minutes long. Oh! And I've only gotten to about like minute five or six. All right, I'm out of reaction noises. Can we keep this moving? Uh, yeah. Um, if you want to follow me, you can follow me. On, uh, on, you can subscribe on YouTube at Boingo Writer. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Boingo underscore Writer. Uh, that's pretty much one of the only social networks I even use, and I don't even use it that much. But hey. I'm going to put a link in it in the description. If you want to join my Discord server, it's uh, the Boingo Collective. The link will be in the description, and click it, join it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, hey, I'm, I'm Simeon Scott. I go by the back human era online. I do analytical videos similar to what Chris does, but exclusively about tokusatsu. Uh, my latest video is about the character of Tommy Oliver from a little show called Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and what I think of his evolution over the years, and also what I think of the actor who has played him as a person in real life. Uh, if you want to watch that, you can go to my YouTube channel. It's linked in the video description. It is The Accuminator. And if you want to see me talking about all kinds of random bullshit all the time, go and follow me on Twitter. That's at The Accuminator. And uh, I believe that is everything. So thank you once again for listening to this episode of Analytical Fanboys. We hope you will join us next time when we will be discussing UHF. Until then, this is make sure, Scott. Um, Chris, make sure to bring your spatulas. Yes, that. Um, and you don't will... remember that joke? Yeah, I did. I just didn't remember to make the reference. <laughs> we will see you next time. Bye!